Hi, everybody. This is Richard Sachs, your host for Lost Arts Radio. This is our show for Sunday, October 8th, 2017 for Worldwide Broadcast. And we're here with our friend and returning guest, Dr. Bill Warner, who's done a great series with us, educational series on understanding Islam in, in terms of its history, main teachings, what's in the scriptures, not really the interpretation of anybody like imams or scholars or anybody. It, it's the interpretation of Muhammad, who's the one who's the most important according to uh, what most Muslims would tell you, because he's the perfect man to follow for the ideal life that Muslims are supposed to follow. So, we've learned a lot over many lessons, and, and I thought we'd do something a little bit different this time. I'm going to be the representative student for all of us here, and I'm going to tell Dr. Warner what I think is a, a condensation of, of what we've learned, and then we'll get to the issues that that leaves us with. And mainly, what I really wanted to get to is start looking at see if there's any creative solutions that might uh, change the future of the whole issue for the better. So, welcome, Dr. Warner, and uh, thank you very much for giving us some time again. Appreciate it. Glad, glad to do it. My daughter, Susan, who works with me in my business, listens to everything that I do, videos and audio, and she said, Richard is the best. <laughs> Tell her thank you, and, and the $50 is in the mail already. Right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so... Um, what I'm going to do, if it's okay with you, is um, tell you what I think some of the main points of what we've learned are, and then if you would correct me and add or subtract or change as you see fit, we'll start with a, a good foundation of what the basic situation is, and then um, go into the issues that that leaves us with, if that's okay. Sure. Okay. So, here's, you know, just boiled down to simple terms, this is what I've gotten or most of what I've really gotten a lot, but this is the essence of what I've gotten from um, from you from reading your books, which I did, and uh, looking at the original source documents, the three main scriptures of Islam, which I really felt like, you know, when we started and when we we're lucky enough to have you come on, I realized, wow, I don't want to have an opinion on this based on what I memorized from somebody or repeat some scholar's opinion that might be wrong. I want to find out directly, which I think is what you've done to start your whole research project. And um, what I understand from, from the reading and from listening and talking with you is that Muhammad, who's the, the center of this whole drama, uh, Muhammad and Allah, and Muhammad was a very responsible uh, businessman and a caravan manager, which in the days that he was doing that in the early 600s, I guess, um, was, you know, you really had to pay attention to what you were doing. It was a pretty dangerous job, and you were guiding caravans full of uh, various kinds of merchandise across areas with lots of bandits roaming around, and anything could happen, and he was doing that successfully and was, you know, a respected member of the business community and the social community, and he lived in a town which officially is supposed to be Mecca, but you're saying there's some... Uh, archaeological questions about that for various uh, reasons of the geography and, you know, the terrain there. But whatever town it was, assuming for the moment that it was Mecca, there was a, a community there that had more than 300 different religions represented. And they shared one religious worship place 
called the Kaaba, if I remember right, and it was shaped like a cube. And they had all kinds of religious artifacts and statues and items of worship and things in there, and they all kind of got along, which was amazing. And a good model for society in many ways of just letting everybody believe what they want to, and everybody gets the right to have their freedom of thought and speech, and similar to some of the founding principles of America. And then Muhammad ran into uh, a bright being. I don't know if it had any physical form or not, but it was at least very brilliant and as far as we know, and he assumed it was an angel, and you could call it that. And it told him, you're the prophet of a new religion, and I want you to do this for me. And he said, you know, at least in his own mind, forget it, this is crazy. I think I'll kill myself instead. And am I uh, accurate so far? No, you're, you're, you're an excellent student, Richard. No, you've got it dead on. Okay, good. Well, because we're going to build on this. I want to make sure where my mistakes are and, you know, correct those. So he ran into the angel, and the angel said, I want to start this religion. And he was going to kill himself. And before he did, he thought the easiest way, um, since they had a lot of mountains around there, was to <laughs> climb one of them and jump off a cliff. And, you know, you don't even have to do anything complex for that. But his family, no, his family didn't stop him. The angel stopped him. He said, no, don't kill yourself. You, you really are the prophet of this new religion, and I need you to do this work. And then he was still really distressed, went back to talk to his family about it. And his family said, yeah, you're a really great person. You're, you're this good businessman and everything, and you'll be a great prophet. You should do it. What, what's wrong with it? There's no reason to really kill yourself for that. It, it's a great honor, and so he decided to go against his initial intuition and, and be the prophet. And from then on, he start, he kept getting revelations of more detail of what the new religion was about from the angel, and he was telling the people in the town because the new religion needs members, and he, so he needed to convert people, and he was doing it by telling them that they're all, all their religions are wrong and they and their families and maybe their ancestors and everybody could avoid going to hell by converting to his religion. And most of them didn't want to do that, but it created a lot of contention in Mecca or wherever they were. And I think that was what we mostly learned about the first either 10 or 13 years. I forget which one it was. 13. 13. Okay. And then, um, I hope you don't mind my talking too much. I, I'm just no, no, no. I mean, I'm trying to lay. I love foundation. this material. Okay, good. So um, anyway, so that kept getting more and more contentious because they had had a, a tradition of everybody letting each other believe what they wanted, which seems like really smart idea to me. But you know, I'm coming <laughs> from modern America, and so anyway. Um, so there was more and more contention. Nobody got killed, but some people got in fights and. Um, eventually they told him he had to leave. So he left because he was kicked out, not because he decided that his next stage was to be somewhere else. But he had friends and allies in another town, which I think we're pretty much clear on was Medina. And mm -hmm. he, he went there and took a different approach, assuming, you know, I'm assuming it's because the angel started telling him a more aggressive um, strategy, because he had only gotten a few converts in, in many years, 13 years, and 
it, you know, it wasn't a way to build a big religion in any reasonable length of time. So the approach that the angel had him do, and I'm assuming that's where he got it, is to try violence since nothing else had worked. And if somebody didn't want to convert, particularly at that time the Jewish tribes, because they had upset Muhammad when they weren't willing to acknowledge that he was the next prophet in their line. And so they became a focus of his um, displeasure. And when they refused to change that, he decided to attack their settlements around Medina. And that's when the murdering in large scale really got going. And I may have left some pieces out, but that's what I get from what you were saying. And that's that, that's the story in broad strokes. Yeah, right. Okay. So, uh, over the next 10 years, the killing kept going, and it was very successful in, in numbers, and it was very appealing to people that wanted to join in the violence and murder because... It was a good job at that time. It was probably the best job that was being offered monetarily. <laughs> and and they, get, uh, they get paid on a percentage, no taxes or anything, I assume. They just split it with Muhammad, with him getting um, part of it, and each one of the warriors getting 20%. 20% from Muhammad, yeah. But it wasn't really a tax because they got 80%, and you know it was all clear profit. By and, the way, just a little sidebar here to give the detail. Yeah, sure. Bands, those who headed up a robber band, and this was a well-known tradition, usually took 25%. So to the oh, wow. to the people in Arabia, Muhammad came across as a generous kind of guy. Instead of taking 25, he only takes 20. I got it. Okay, so that's great. It was a, a the best job for many reasons. And it was also the best job because since it was a religion, if you have a workplace accident and die because somebody <laughs> kills you, then um, you get to go to paradise and you don't need right. money anymore anyway. <laughs> so there's no way that you could lose. So well, a lot the, of people. The Quran, even, the Quran even describes this as a win win situation. Go forth in jihad, and if you die, you'll go to paradise, and if you don't die, you'll come back rich. Exactly. So you stated one of the practical verses in the Quran. Okay, okay, so that you can understand why this was very appealing. I mean, the only people that wouldn't see it as obviously a great idea were those who are still hung up on the idea that murdering is not a really good thing to do and stuff like that. But apparently a lot of the people weren't bothered by that, and they thought it was a great deal, especially the paradise thing. So that went on for the remainder of his life, and most of the people in the area that he was working made the uh, strategic decision to become a Muslim. And he was very successful in terms of numbers. And then when he finally died in his 60s, the people that succeeded him, which were called, the four of them were called caliphs, they also reminded the followers that there was this detail that once you joined, you couldn't leave. Uh, there was that. It's the job. Once you took it, you couldn't. You 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 could be fired, maybe, but you couldn't leave. Yeah, yeah. It kind of reminds me of the Eagles song "Hotel California," yeah. but I, th yeah. I think that was different. So, um, <laughs> anyway, you you could you couldn't leave, but if you stayed, you'd still get all the same benefits. So correct. 
they had to kill some people who were determined to leave. But after that, I guess mostly there wasn't too many people leaving. Object lessons like this are learned very fast. Yeah, exactly. So strategically, super successful. And, um, but not only was there this little thing about murder and invasion of countries, there were also a few other things that, that became central elements of the religion. And that was that there were two kinds of people, Muslims and Kafirs. And Kafir was everybody other than Muslim. And that for them, there was a different code of conduct, and you could make them into slaves, you could rape them, you could deceive them, you could steal from them, you could take their property and kill their kids and animals. And or you could like. also just work with them as, as though they were ordinary people. The choices weren't all bad, it's just that there was okay. a buffet of choices that you and I, if you and I set out to do business together, I wouldn't expect that you would figure you had the right to kill me just because I didn't like your business plan. Um. Yeah, but, you know, that's because you didn't have the inspired guidance from Allah. So, right, yeah. So, anyway, you're right, they had the option, but they were ordered never to really internally become friends with any of the non-Muslims, right? Correct. Okay, I mean, you could act like... You could like be friendly, but not a real friend. Yeah, yeah, because then you'd, you'd be too attached to them if you had to kill them later on, I would imagine. Well, right. also, it's like, so if you have a Muslim who's a boss and he has a Kafir working for him and a Muslim working for him, the Muslim gets promoted, not the Kafir. Yeah, but the Kafir gets to live in that situation, which is great. Right. So, okay, so the issue is you've got people after these first four caliphs and after, after the history that happened after that. In, in modern times, the success of gaining more and more converts and losing almost nobody because of the alternative, you know, die if you want to leave, is now people born into this religion are in memorizing it, hearing about it, memorizing it from before they're old enough to read or anything like that. And they're taught that leaving is punishable by death. Um that all these other practices are, are the way to emulate the life and orders of Muhammad. And you've got the global power structure now supporting and arming and directing and using this tendency of Islam to invade and overcome cultures uh, because it goes together with the uh, agenda of the other rulers that I spent a lot of time looking into. And it's, it's a perfect marriage. The only problem is that the regular population um, gets totally destroyed. And probably in the end, the, the, you know, violent Muslim fighters that are being part of it are not realizing that they also may be under even more ruthless bosses, but they'll find that out later on. So, so my real question is, what are the options, if we're very creative and look at this and understand it deeply, for how we can avoid complete world disaster as a result of the end product of Muhammad's strategy? Well, you have asked the question. All the other questions are very minor in comparison to this. Yeah. Now, the first thing you have to do is understand the nature of Islam, but then when you get through with that, you then ask yourself the question, well, what are we going to do? And this question needs to be applied to different groups, because each okay. group has its own separate answer. 
for instance, if you're a Christian, then your answer is, according to your own scriptures, that you should try to convert these people. But okay. Christians have never been very successful at converting Muslims, and there are reasons for this. So if you're a university professor, then your, your approach to what to do about Islam is different from someone who writes books, from someone who goes to church, from someone who's an atheist, from someone who's a musician. Mm, okay. So, so there, to, as it were, everyone has to come at it from their own almost social center of gravity. Mm-hmm. So the responses don't need to be uniform. The responses don't need to be uniform, but the input or the definition of the problem does need to be uniform. I don't know if it makes sense here or not, but everyone needs to understand the scope of the problem. And so yeah, so what, plans maybe will you, be based on reality. Maybe you could put in a little bit more detail, because you, as you said, I just used really broad strokes, and we've got a little bit of time to make sure that some of the detail of the problem needs to you know, to be sure it's clear. Well, you have stated the problem in its harshest fashion. What makes it complicated is, is that most Muslims do not exist in the world of, of actually harming people. Right. Uh, and, the, and the Quran even has some of its complaints about that. It complains that some of the jihadis got so rich they didn't want to do it anymore. And then the other one is, is that people just didn't want to do it anymore because it was hot, dirty, dangerous work. I mm-hmm. mean, being a raiding caravans is dangerous. You can lose your life at it. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. but anyway, the average Muslim does not participate in jihad at all. But now then we have to be subtle here. Jihad does not just mean killing. That is another misconception. Okay. Jihad means struggle. And it literally does mean struggle. Now, you can struggle with violence. You can struggle with words. You can struggle with money. And all of these are very effective. Indeed, what we find is, is in the early days, the struggle using money and the struggle using words is far more necessary than the, than the, the jihad of the sword. So there's jihad of money, jihad of speech and writing, and jihad of money. And we see, both, we see all of these being used. Now, oddly enough, the jihad of the sword, which is the most romantic, if you want to use that term, in terms of it sort of reaches out and grabs you, uh, I mean, the idea of using money to advance an idea is just like a political campaign, so there's nothing shocking in that. Mm-hmm. Now, if our politics included hiring of assassins, then our political game would be a lot different. It also might be more candid, I don't know, but anyway. So there are many forms of jihad, and, but most people do not choose to participate in the jihad of the sword, or today it would be the AK-47. Well, w- one thing to clarify while you're in the middle of that point is that, yeah, they're all different kinds of struggle, but what unifies them is what they're struggling for. And according to Muhammad, I think, what they're struggling for is to make sure there's nobody but Muslims on the planet. But well, this, according, according this, this to some is, of the, the Muslim spokespeople, they're just struggling to be good people. Well, they are struggling to be good people. Now, good here needs to be defined. Because some of the things that, for instance, being a good Muslim a husband means you can beat your wife, according right. to Sharia law. Now, the real, the real struggle, however, is to implement Sharia law. Islam is the most brilliant concept of war that I've ever studied. They, Muhammad made Napoleon and Caesar and Alexander the Great look like klutzes, or just brutal beasts. Mm-hmm. Because Muhammad's form of struggle was civilizational. It doesn't matter to a Muslim in America whether I convert or not, but it matters in every way whether I submit to the Sharia. That is, do I agree not to criticize Islam? Do I agree not to oppose Islam? This, that's what is important. 
then so th- and that is but the point I keep trying to make here is is the average person is not at all attracted to going out and killing people maybe in his fantasy but I mean I grew up on a farm and I've killed animals but I never took any pleasure in it it was always for food food and eating yeah. So that is, I don't consider the act of killing something that I would like to do. There's something in me that sort of pushes back from that. And I think that for most people, this is the case. Yeah. So there is a, a barrier that has to be, a, has to be surmount, sur- surmounted before people are willing to commit to jihad of the sword. And most people just don't do that. They, they, look, the average Muslim is like the average person. They've got things that interest them in their life. They occupy their time and period and their religion is something that is more secondary than primary. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I just don't want everyone to, who would be listening to this to think that the average Muslim is going to pick up a weapon and harm them. Yeah, no, in, in fact, my experience with many Muslim friends is they're great people. I mean, people that I emulate in many ways. And not one of the ones who I know well is really following what I found out that Muhammad said to do. And by the way, you've now put your finger on the very heart of the matter as to how to deal with Islam. Because, let me give you an example of a man that I know, I'm going to be seeing this Saturday. He's going to be in town. He is an apostate from Islam. And by the way, the apostasy laws are so powerful that there have been imams in the present century who have said, if it were not for the apostasy laws, Islam would cease to exist. So this idea that you can check out any time you want, but you can never leave is very uh-huh. powerful. And by uh-huh. the way, this, this, let me dwell on this Hotel California's expression here. Yeah. You can check out any time you want, but you can never leave. Islam does not, if you want to leave Islam, but be, be quiet about it, and do not make a fuss and don't criticize Islam, there's no great social pressure against you. So that's Islam, checking out, in other words. Right, but you can never leave. As long as you don't do it in a public fashion, okay. that, that, is, that is what is ruinous. Islam is an orthopraxy. That is, it is a, Muslims, pretty much no matter what they're, most people have heard of Sunni and Shia, but there are yeah. many more small divisions in Islam than Sunni and Shia. There are many, I think I remember a figure of over a hundred different kinds of Islam there are. Mm. But they all may have differing understandings of the doctrine, but they all practice it the same way. That is, they all go down and do the prayers on their knees. Yeah. So it's an orthopraxy. They pray five times a day. Okay. So there, anyway, there's different, as long as the form remains the same and you don't resist Islam in public, then you can go sort of go on your way. So, so the, the behavior toward non-Muslims doesn't necessarily have to be followed? No, what happens is, is that Muslims exist in a world today in which, if you're an American, only one Muslim, only one person in a hundred, roughly, and I don't know if the figure's right or not, but mm-hmm. roughly one percent are Muslim. Obviously, by that, and unless you don't leave your community at all, 99% of the people you meet are not going to be like you. They need to earn a living, you have to get along. And remember, the average person is not that hostile to other people they meet. Right. So, Muslims can be very friendly, what they're supposed to do is never choose you over a Muslim in preference. But okay. they have to get along with, with other people, but, or otherwise they wouldn't be able to live here. Right. So this business of harsh jihad is not one that's easily or commonly followed. Okay, okay, okay. okay. And, and by the way, I find that the average person just follows their own inclinations anyway. 
So if they like you, they keep doing business with you. Yeah. So it's mostly following the outer form that keeps you acceptable, in other words. Exactly. As long as you look like you're doing it fine, you're fine. Okay. Then what's going on in a place like the UK where they've got terror attacks almost every week now? Um, not just that. guns. Well, yeah, it's not supposed to be on the news, but we have sources that are, bring videos of what's actually going on. And so there's terror attacks all over the place. And the news, if they have to mention it, they say it's not, there's no motive and it's not Islamic terror. And the guy's <laughs> screaming Allah, Allahu Akbar while he's killing. Richard, are you saying, are you, Richard, are you saying that the media would deceive us? No, I, I, we know that's not true. That's anti-science. <laughs> but uh, but I'm just saying it's a great mystery because these people are running over people with cars or stabbing them or, you know, killing them in other ways that are not pleasant and uh, screaming Allahu Akbar usually. The ones who the media clarifies are not Muslim terrorists. And um, I'm wondering, you were just explaining why in America what you said sounded like if that would just keep going, everybody would be fine. So what's the difference between the two situations? What happens is, is that Islam is far stronger in England than it is in America. The response, Islam is unusual in that it has a broad array of ethical choices. Okay. That is, it's like a buffet table. You can eat at one end of the buffet table and there's no poison on it at all. But you can go down to the other end and there's poison there. Maybe that's a bad analogy. I don't know. But mm -hmm. anyway, there's a broad range of choices of behavior. And these choices of behavior are reflected in Muhammad. Muhammad is the perfect Muslim. Muhammad, when he was weak, did not kill anybody, did not start any wars. There were mm -hmm. some fistfights and loud arguments, but that's not so exceptional. Mm -hmm. So okay. in, when, he, when a Muslim is weak, he reacts one way. And when he becomes stronger, then Islam responds in a different fashion. So there's a broad array of possible things to happen here. And so, what, look, the first Muslims were brought into America were by Henry Ford. Did you know that? I did not know that, no. Henry Ford was a, was a serious teetotaler. That is, it wasn't that he, just that he didn't drink, he didn't want anybody to drink, and he didn't like anybody to drink who worked for him. Okay. So he started bringing in Lebanese Arabs who would work in his car factory, and they didn't drink at all. And that was primarily his interest in the Muslims, was they don't drink alcohol. Wow, amazing. Okay, I didn't know that. Well, it's, it's, that's a, just an odd little fact. I'm yeah. sure there's been other Muslims who came here, but they weren't very active in their religion. Okay. So when you say you're, you're contrasting um, Muslim behavior between being strong and being weak, and I, I'm assuming that what you mean by that is what percentage of the population where you are is Muslim. Exactly. And as that happens, different things start to happen. For instance, typically Muslims self-ghettoize. That is, they take over an apartment building or they take over a part of town. And they, they because they're very communally organized. Mm -hmm. In fact, there's some aspects of Islam that I, as a matter of fact, my next video, by the way, is going to be called What I Admire About Islam. Right. So, so some people off kilter. Yeah, anyway, well, having a supportive community is really nice. That's great. Well, it's one of the reasons that people join Islam. Look, we live in a country, we live right now in a nation which your individuality is what is emphasized. And that right. has some wonderful side effects. 
but Islam is the thing where your community is emphasized and family is en- emphasized. Mm-hmm. So therefore, what happens is, is you tend to want to cluster with your own. And so right. what happens is a particular part of a neighborhood will become Islamic. The point I'm making here is, is that the more Islamic it becomes, the more insistent are that you observe Sharia. So once okay. a neighborhood becomes thoroughly Islamic, if you want to walk down the street in a miniskirt or short shorts, you may be accosted because of that. Right, right, right. And you may get, and you may get responses which are not pleasant. Yeah, so, and in fact that's happening all over England right now. Exactly it is. You have the Sharia police. Yeah. Uh, these are informal and don't have a uh, don't have a official status, but they tend to work well in groups and what happens is the neighborhood they move into becomes Islamic more and more as time goes on. Mm-hmm. And so then uh, the community responds differently to responses to its neighborhood. So it's very adaptive. This is another part of the civilizational war concept. Uh, I'm, I'm very serious when I say that Muhammad's concept of war was far more sophisticated than anyone else. For mm-hmm. instance, Muslims have made the headscarf a weapon of civilizational war. That is, you must let us do this. Prayer becomes an element of civilizational war. You must allow prayer oh, you to mean Okay. So, in other words, they, they would go and become active in a local government and um, yes. get concessions, basically. Yes. Religion. Okay. And what happens is the people who grant them these concessions think, well, we'll give them this, then they'll be happy. What, they, what these, this kind of thinking does not recognize is Islam is a complete civilization. That is, there is an Islamic way to do everything that you can imagine. There is no aspect of your life, including how you comb your hair and how you put on your shoes, that mm-hmm. Islam doesn't have something to say about it. Okay. So... Therefore, anything can become a weapon of war. Halal food can become a weapon of war. When I say war here, you see, when, when Americans think of war, they think of kinetic war, F-15s, right. uh, yeah. hellfire missiles, uh, Marines charging the beach. Mm-hmm. So that is our concept of war, but Muhammad's concept of war goes far beyond that into music, poetry, business, interest, how loans are to be made. And as Muslims become stronger and stronger, they keep emphasizing more and more. No, we, we don't want your banking system. We want it done. Oh, here's a banking, here's an idea of, of uh, civilizational war. England used to, the banks all would give children a piggy bank. Hmm, okay. Piggy banks, it turns out, I think are English in their origin. And I don't know why pigs and money go together, but they do. I had sure. a piggy bank. Yeah, me too. I remember. Well, there's no more piggy banks that the banks give away because Muslims let them know as soon as they became strong enough that they were offended that okay. a halal, that a, uh, it's not a law. Anyway, you, uh, I'm, I've become confused here on which word to use. Well, it is not yeah. allowed. It is forbidden. Well, halal. the thing is that, that there's some implication that if you have a piggy bank, then that's connected to eating pork being okay or something like that. And so this is offensive to Islam because pork is haram, forbidden. Okay. And so therefore, here we have something like a free giveaway equivalent to the toaster or something else. Mm-hmm. That may be for an old audience. There's not a lot of people maybe who remember when opening a bank savings account, you'd get a toaster or something. So I mean, <laughs> yeah. I've dated myself here, I'm afraid. Well, you remember the show Queen for a Day. I think that explains everything. Yes, it does. <laughs> anyway... I, I remember when pennies were made out of copper. But yeah, anyway, I've seen those too. Coin was made out of silver. Yeah. But anyway, so that's how old I am. But the point is, is that who would have thought that a piggy bank could become an element of war? 
I'm saying that Islam is genius, pure genius. War meaning converting society over to one Sharia. government by Sharia. Right. Okay. Because here's what happens. Muslims don't give a rip about whether I convert to Islam as all as long as I comport with Islam, with Sharia. Because what will happen is over time, mm-hmm. more and more elements of the, for instance, the food in prisons already, I think, in Illinois is demanded to be halal food because so many Muslims were fussing about it. And so, therefore, everybody eats halal food now. Wow. So, as we like to put it, under the Jewish law, Jews don't eat pork, but under Sharia law, no one eats pork. There's a big difference here because the Jewish, I mean. Yeah, it's like that one point. That This is a huge point. Well, it's a huge point. I mean, I have friends who are, matter of fact, I would say my best friend is a Jewish person. Mm-hmm. And they eat, they eat kosher at their house, but they, they're not sticklers about it outside of their house. Okay. And they don't care whether I cook kosher or not. Right. So the Jew does not consider that kosher to be an element of civilizational war, whereas Islam does. Okay, let's, can you say why they would care whether somebody else eats the right food or not? Because the Sharia includes the entire world, both Muslim and non-Muslim. Okay, in other words, what God wants is for everybody to follow Sharia. Exactly. And that's the most important thing. Whether you convert or not is not important. Okay. What they Once the Sharia is in place, and for instance, this now, in Turkey as an example, what happens over time is, is that the other religions receive new rules as well. For instance, under the Sharia, fully enforced, Jewish hymns, I mean Jewish hymns, Christian hymns can't be heard outside of the church. They can't ring their church bell. Right. And the church cannot be higher than the than the uh, never mind the synagogue, the mosque, or any Muslim yeah. house. Yeah. Matter of fact, let me give you an odd thing that I saw in the Balkans area in Macedonia. I saw a church that was from the umpteenth century. I forget how old it was, but it was it was a church that was built during the time of the occupation of the Balkans by the Ottomans. They, when you stepped into the church, you normally mount stairs up to a church if you think about it. And this one you mounted down because to, in order to get the grandeur mm. of the church mm. they wanted inside, they had to dig a basement and build the church so it was eight feet below ground because okay. otherwise it would have been taller than a nearby mosque. Now, Turkey is a really interesting example because it was primarily a Christian country a while back, right? As was Egypt, as was uh, Iraq, as was Lebanon and North Africa. Right. So, so what... Can you give kind of a, an idea of the succession of what actually happened in any one of those places? Well, first, jihad put Islam in the driver's seat. Now, this jihad against Turkey took centuries. It, the final collapse was in 1490, or 1458. I should know that, but I don't. And you are talking about a military jihad in this case. Yes, right? this is a military jihad. We had cannons. Oh, by the way, there's a sidebar here. The cannons that finally blew down the walls of uh, Constantinople, Mm -hmm. those cannons were sold to the Muslims by a Christian. Okay, that sounds like today. Yes, doesn't it? Yeah. But earlier, earlier Constantinople had been weakened because one of the Crusades stopped off and instead of attacking the, after marching over Turkey to go to the Middle East, they Mm -hmm. instead crushed uh, Constantinople. So which greatly weakened the Byzantine government. Actually, by the time Constantinople fell, the emperor should have better been called the mayor. Okay, so so the strategy at that time was really different than what you just 
finished explaining. They they were not going to the school boards and stuff like that. They were using cannons. They took and, over. The, they took it at the very top. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So what we have in America today and Europe is an infiltration from the bottom up, but right. in Constantinople it went from the top down. But anyway, once they, the, they're using some positions like the mayor of London and things like that too, but mostly yeah. from the bottom. So what has happened is is that once the central government became Muslim, that is, it ruled Constantinople, which became Istanbul. Right. They did not say to any Christians, "You have to convert or die." That is not what they did. And so what they said was, well, you're a Christian now, so you can't serve in the army, you can't serve in the government, uh, you can't have any, you can't be the boss of Muslims, uh, you can't defend yourself in court, and you have all these restrictions about your religion. Your hymns can't be heard, you cannot talk about your religion to a Muslim. Here's an oddity of it, nor can you study the Quran on your own. Wow, that's interesting. I would never imagine that one. It's very subtle, but think about why they would do that, because... You see, I have studied the Quran on my own, and I reached some different conclusions. Right. Some difficult questions, right? So, yes. As the Quran says, do not ask difficult questions. And so, these are all the things that are put in place. So, after, mm-hmm. after the invasion of Constantinople and the occupation of all of Turkey now, it took centuries for Christianity to disappear. Out of, tur- out of Turkey, you mean? Yes. Okay. Now, now then, Turkey is 0.3% Christian. Okay. Yeah, and I, I suspect that 0.3% is possibly not having a very easy time surviving there right now. It is not. It is, uh, it, in another short century, uh, Christianity will not exist at all inside of Turkey. Yeah. So, the, the statement that that imam that you quoted said about apostasy being the the way that Islam has grown and survived, relating that to the Turkey situation, um, would you say it applies there? And if so, how? Yes. I mean, in the sense of apostasy is very difficult under Islam. Now, the apostasy is difficult because of two things. Number one, remember, you live in a community, and so you need somebody to work with. You need mm-hmm. people to help you with your car or whatever else. Right. So you need to live in the community. And so even if you leave Islam, you don't want to make a big do of it. In other words, you want your apostasy to be private, not public. Yeah, so you're changing what you're thinking and doing in, in your house and stuff like right. that. So here we have a business which never loses any customers and can only gain customers. Mm-hmm. Now, if I could set up a business like that, pretty soon I'd be, I'd be owning Google. Yeah, 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 exactly. So, okay, so that's interesting. So, so the, the Islamification of Turkey was happening uh, concurrently with Egypt and other places, or was it in sequence? Yes, these, these things all happened. In, in, it's an erosion of the native civilization, whatever that civilization is. For instance, although we're talking about Christianity, Pakistan used to be Hindu. Okay. Afghanistan used to be Buddhist. As a matter of fact, what we call Buddhist art was actually invented in Pakistan, in uh, Afghanistan. Wow. Okay. A little, little, little sidebar here. When Alexander Buddhist the Great, that uh, means there were all kinds of statues and paintings and and yes. everything all over Afghanistan. Yes. And here's the way the reason it happened before before um, Alexander the Great left behind soldiers in Afghanistan 
who married with the native women, and they slowly over a period of time converted to Buddhism. But remember, they had ancestry that came from Macedonia, which is the same as, well, that's not exactly true, but shared a common aesthetic with the Greeks. Okay. So it was the Buddhist Greeks who created art, the statues of Buddha, the flowing robes and things. These okay. are all heavily influenced by Greece. Well, so see, yeah, I mean, interesting. That's, that's interesting because you almost never, at least I and maybe some other people don't, think immediately of Greece when you think of Buddhism. No. But it and, was yet, a huge and yet the Greeks who converted to Buddhism created what we call Buddhist art. Okay. There was no Buddhist art until they did that. Wow. Okay. But the point is, is that there's not a single Buddhist left in Afghanistan. Do you remember the Bamiyan Buddhas? Those huge oh. statues of the Buddhas that were destroyed by the Taliban? I've heard about that, yeah. Well, First off, the reason they destroyed those statues is Muhammad destroyed all religious art. Right. Well, uh, actually, didn't Muhammad say that there shouldn't be any kind of art, really? Right. Well, this is exactly true. Now, what, what has happened is that calligraphy has become an art, because if you're writing beautiful letters on the Quran, it's hard to turn that away. Yeah, okay. But uh, I'll give you $1,000 for every Buddhist symphony, for every uh, Muslim symphony you can do, or any Muslim play you've been to. That is what we consider art, which is sculpture, music. Uh, Khomeini, for instance, had never heard of the never heard the word Beethoven. Khomeini was the ruler of the of the Iranian Revolution. Yeah. He didn't know what the word Beethoven meant. Okay, so so it's not like for some bizarre reason that people born in the Muslim religion aren't creative. It's that they're not allowed to be artistic. Well, it's certainly difficult if you're not allowed to draw. If you cannot create human form. I mean, yeah. you're left with flowers and trees and landscapes. Yeah. As a matter of fact, one artist came to uh, one of the uh, Muhammad's closest companions and said, look, I make my living with art. And, uh, he, and the guy says, well, you'll have to restrict your art. To, it can't be anything that's alive and can move. Because you see, here's what is going to happen. All of the artists on Judgment Day are going to be called forth by Allah and say, you drew this animal here, make it move, make it have children, make it live and die. You mm. can't do that, well, you go to hell. It's kind of like the Islamic version of the whole golden calf thing, right? It's like you're, you're creating uh, an idol by drawing a, an artistic picture. As a matter of fact, yes, it is like you're creating an idol. And you're in, it's a form of shirk, S-H-I-R-K, which is a form of associating things with Allah, you're mm -hmm. saying to Allah that I can create life as well as you. So for that reason, there wouldn't be any paintings or sculptures of Muhammad too, right? Ah, uh, you are exactly correct. Now then, what has happened is, look, I keep talking about the pure Islam, all right? I'm talking about the pure textual Islam. But we're dealing here with human beings. And so human beings try to find ways around this, find the <laughs> ways they can do it. Sure. And so people do try to create some form of art but in, and observe the strictures as well as they can. But to think that you live in a civilization without music, I mean... Okay, so what was the thing with music? Why, why was music not desired? Muhammad didn't like music. That's all we know. Okay. And it was the angel Gabriel who said that uh, Muhammad complained about that Gabriel hadn't visited for a while, and Gabriel said, well, at one time there's a curtains, with, I think I got this, curtains or cushions with animals drawn on it, and I think there was also a puppy in the house. And so uh, Gabriel said that 
an angel never visits a house with with figures drawn in it or a dog. Yeah, dogs. Where, where does it say that dogs are unclean because there have been people attacked in the UK recently because they were walking a dog? There is. If you're praying and a dog, particularly a black dog, walks in front of you, you have to re you have to re cleanse yourself and start your prayers all over again. Okay. And I don't know what the rest of the not liking dogs is. Now, dogs can't be used as affectionate pets. If you're a sheep herder and you need a dog to herd your sheep, you can do that. Or if you're a hunter and you need a dog that can retrieve birds that you've shot, you can do that. Okay. So they can be used as a working tool. But here's the thing. They cannot be any affection there. They can't be a pet. Okay. Now, oddly enough, cats are not included in this because Muhammad liked cats. So it's okay to have other kinds of pets then, right? And they're cats... I don't know why you I've heard people refer to goldfish as a pet, which is an odd choice for me. But anyway, okay, uh, but you can have but pets. Only, but only one that you know that's forbidden is dogs. Dogs, yes. Now okay. let's talk about something here. If you were in, if there were Muslims outside praying, oh, there's three things that can void your prayer. Two of them are animals. Well, if you're praying and a and a person walks, a woman walks in front of you, you have to start all over again. If a donkey walks in front of you, you have to start all over again. And if a dog, particularly a black dog, walks in front of you. So if you're praying in the streets of London and a woman walking the dog passes in front, the whole business has to stop and restart again. Okay. Okay. So this brings up a really interesting point because there's a lot of complaints about women in the scriptures of Islam of them not being very good compared to men, except as mothers, but in otherwise in general not very virtuous. And yet... You have the, in general, the women followers of Islam are very devoted, most of them. And so, what's the psychology of that? Well, I've studied this to some degree because if something's happening, even though it doesn't make sense to you, it's making sense to somebody. Mm -hmm. Let's go over what the virtues are if you're a woman for Islam. Number one, let's say that you're a woman in America today and you want a husband. You don't want a lover, you want a husband. Mm-hmm. Well, in America today, you can get laid to have sex very easily, but to find somebody who will commit to be a husband, that's very difficult. That's if, And if you're a black woman, it's even more difficult. Mm-hmm. So now then, you're a black woman or a white woman, and you become a Muslim. You will be easily able to find a husband, because the Quran and the Sunnah, is, well, the Sunnah which is the way of Muhammad, is mm-hmm. very much saying that you need to be married and have kids and be a father and a mother. Mm-hmm. So now okay. then, there's another, but there's another bonus coming here. Let's say that you're a mother and you want to stay at home and raise the kids. The proper way for a ma- the man is supposed to bring home, I would say the bacon, but ha ha, we yeah. can't say that. It's case, right. So anyway, he brings home the money. So you're sp- you get, you get, if you become a Muslim woman, you get a man who's commanded to work and commanded to be a husband. Well, there's, a, there's some good things there. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, you're also considered to be half as intelligent as a man, but I suppose these details could be worked out privately. Mm-hmm. Uh, Muhammad said, I've seen hell, and it's mostly filled with women. Why, Muhammad? Well, because they did not obey their husbands. Mm-hmm. They didn't appreciate their husbands. Mm-hmm. And then he goes further to say that uh, they have half the intelligence of men. So... Okay, so so part of the psychology in answer to that question is the security and yes. the support and the community, you know, support around you. And, and you all, uh, and you, by the way, you also have another community you're a member of, which is the other women. Let's say that you live in an apartment complex, which is primarily taken over by Muslims. 
Mm-hmm. So you have other Muslim women who are home, they have children, you mm-hmm. now have a community which can play together and have a home life together. Wow, these are sounds, powerful. These are powerful things. You have. A, oh, you, I mean that. Them. That sounds almost normal. You know, we used. Everybody used to have that at one point. That is, you use the past tense. Yeah. yeah. And so now, then, people are raised in a city, and they may it, having a playmate can be difficult, but not if you're a Muslim living in what in their own terms and their own turf. Then, so there's there are. Uh, I try to be very fair about all this, Richard. I'm, I'm, I'm trained as a scientist, and although I dislike Islam because of a lot of things about it, which I can make clear, at the same time, I'm not some ranting, foaming at the mouth person who says it's all bad. Right. Like I, you, I mean, this, you, is, this is a brilliant thing that the Muslim families have, have figured out, that it's not a really good idea to just dump your kids off at government daycare. You know, I think they're right. Yeah. Yeah, me too. So pretty interesting. Okay, so that's a big attraction, definitely for for women. If and if they get a husband who, in real oh, life, and, and, treats and them and pretty. Well. There's yeah. another there's another advantage here. Muslims are the best of people. So all of a sudden, you now become better than the kafir. Mm-hmm. This is not to be sneezed at either. Look, uh, humility is a is a virtue, but this doesn't mean that pride doesn't exist. <laughs> Right, right. And right. you can now be proud of being a better person than the person who's walking to you down the street, who is, if it's a native, they're probably better off than you. So now then you can look down your nose at other people. Right, it's like, it's like the chosen uh, group uh, that God likes over other people is open to new members. Well, the, this, this, is, this is a meritorious position for a lot of people. It's like you can get promoted socially simply by saying there is no God but Allah. And Muhammad is his prophet. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So these yeah. are all, I think these are important issues we're discussing here, Richard, because we don't want to demonize people. We want to understand that they, when a person becomes a Muslim, they have a rational reason for this. And of course, a person could become a Muslim also, but something they're leaving behind. Maybe they had a bad experience at the synagogue or had a bad experience in church. Right. So now right. then you're, you're able to start all over again. <clears throat> So, so I mean, there, there's a general impression that most of the Muslims are, are born into their religion, but what, how, is there a way to gauge how many are converts from other places? You know, I don't know. This, would have to, this is now off into the area of what I call Muslimology. If you'll notice, well, I advertise myself as being an expert on doctrine, which are words on paper. But I do know this. Out of those people who convert to Islam, a couple of years later, two-thirds of them have gone back. Oh, that's in their regular life. You well, mean they, think, they've actually become apostates in spite yes. of the rules? Okay. Now, apostates are not so much killed in this country because, number one, there's no public support for it. Mm-hmm. So there are things that, remember, Islam is quite weak in America now. So what we see now, now if this is in Pakistan, you'll get a different result. Yeah, you would have new converts tending to stay, I would imagine. Yes. Well, as a matter of fact, what you've reached in, in places like Pakistan is at least in the public face of it, there's almost no Christians or anything left. Let me mention something here that I read a stat that's interesting about, which I think, since we're talking about percentages, roughly 5% of all uh, the people in Saudi Arabia are atheist. Okay, I didn't know that. That's not something widely spread. So there is, but this is like an underground current here, sort of a black market of spirituality. Yeah. Okay. Well, also, I, it crossed my mind while you were talking that another 
really positive aspect of Muslim society or Islamic society is caring about what happens politically in their community and being involved in things like school board decisions and local government decisions and things like that. They don't just uh, get lazy and, and don't want to know what's happening. They, they pay attention. You said seems, something very seems important. Seems like a good quality, right? They, they, you said something very important. According to me, my figures, over half of this, 51% of Islamic doctrine is about politics. Hmm. Islam is a political movement. It's not just a religion. Look, Richard, if, if Islam were just a religion, that's all it was, I wouldn't be talking to you here now because I wouldn't care about it enough to be talking about it. The reason I care about Islam is it has a political agenda. I don't give the rip about, the, about whether Muslims pray five times a day or not at all. I just simply don't care. I don't mean that in a bad way either. I mean, it's just, there's a lot of things I don't care about. I mean, they're just right. not a Well, I mean, I mean, I would think that you, you would support the idea that everybody's agreed, uh, allowed to have their own religion and beliefs and everything. Oh, yeah. As long as they don't force everybody else. I, I, w I wish you the best. And if your religion brings you a, if here's what I care about your religion. Does it, what kind of character does it give you? What kind of ethics does it give you? But yeah. moving along to the politics, yeah. Muslims are exceedingly powerful at politics. They play for the winning team. Here's what I mean. In an election, they can bring, here's what they bring to the table. If you're, if you're running for uh, Congress and you move, you're talking to the Muslims, if you cut a deal with them, they can deliver 90% of all Muslims as to, in your voting box. Mm. That mm. is a powerful thing. That makes a politician look at them and say, well, how can I help you? What would you like? Right, well, exactly. That's interesting. Okay. So Muslims are a powerful political force, and it feels good to be on a powerful winning political team right. and with clearly stated goals. Look, they have goals that are laid out in the Sharia, and they're going to implement these one step at a time. Mm -hmm. So it, it, politics becomes an exciting game. See, they have a master plan. These people right. are brilliant. There, a document which everyone should read is the Explanatory Memo of the Muslim Brotherhood which was discovered, I won't describe the details because it's like in a spy novel, but anyway, mm -hmm. in a secret sub-basement in a house in Virginia, they arrested a man who was the uh, secretary for the Muslim Brotherhood. In it, he had all these vast numbers of papers, and one of them was called the Explanatory Memo. It was a, a long-distance plan. They planned for generations, and they planned over, everything, over all aspects of society. So here was a, a plan that, with its depth and scope, we do not have anybody who can sit down and create such a plan. Mm -hmm. And what's scary about it is, is that the plan is being implemented. That is, this is not just some piece of paper that was written and tossed aside. No, it's a piece of paper which is being utilized in an active manner, and they're accomplishing the goals of it. One of these things were is that in America, they wouldn't build mosques anymore. They would instead build community centers. Hmm. Wow, I didn't know well, the, 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 there's a very practical reason for this. What the movies and bowling and other things are very popular because you're raised in a society around it. So if you want to have those things, then they wanted to do it on our turf. So you'll see our movies. So therefore, the community center is to keep the children, teenagers, from being attracted by the society around them. So therefore, it is a... But see, that's a brilliant strategy. Right. Don't just build a church or a mosque. Instead, build something that will attract... So that the kids will come to the mosque, uh, to the community center to play basketball. 
Yeah, 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 exactly. Wow. You know, I everybody hears about the Muslim Brotherhood in various ways, but I bet not one in a hundred people has any idea what it actually is. It is a brilliant organization. And by the way, this is not some uh, Illuminati or anything. This is an active, ongoing group with many, 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 many fronts. This is something else that Muslims do. Is they don't just have... There's not the Muslim Brotherhood Incorporated. The Muslim Brotherhood is a term that includes many organizations, many, many different groups. The Muslim Student Association, for instance, is a Muslim Brotherhood operation. And the explanatory memo goes on and describes all these different groups. ISNA, Islamic Society of North America, uh, which I believe is, holds most of the leases. I'm, I, may, I shouldn't say that. I'm not sure. But anyway, there are many different groups. And they work together. They go to meetings, frequent meetings. They uh, have national, international meetings. And they are, they are strategic planners. And they're willing to face what needs to be faced. Let me give you an example of a bad idea, but it's a plan. Back when Stanley McChrystal under Obama was chief man in Afghanistan, he mm-hmm. put together a, uh, a strategic plan on how to defeat the Taliban. I got a hold of a redacted copy so that no names were available and no tactical data was there. But Richard, there were three words that were not included in the entire plan. Those three words were jihad, Islam, and Muslim. So here we're fighting a war against jihadists who with a Muslim ideology and a Muslim war doctrine, and yet those three words do not occur in their plan. For the Muslim Brotherhood, just the opposite. All the right words occur in their plans. Did you, did you actually get a copy of the document yes. that you're talking it's, about? Yes, it's Stanley McChrystal. It appeared on the web. It was heavily redacted. Okay. But I just read the whole thing because I was looking for the words Islam. Hey, here's another example. The 9-11 report, the first 9-11 report, which was under Bush, contained several hundred references to jihad, Islam, and Muslims. Mm-hmm. No anti-terror documents that come out anymore ever mention Islam. Trump created a mild revolution when he said Islamic terror, mm-hmm. because by the time Obama was through, the idea of jihad had been transformed into combating violent extremism. Yes, exactly. Which is a nothing word if you've ever heard one. It's like generic type radicals, right? <laughs> bad people, basically. <laughs> bad people, bad people. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, the thing I'm saying here is, is that once again, one of the things I admire about Islam is their ability to do strategic planning, and mm-hmm. they stay the course, and they're always optimistic, because the Quran covers the psychology of losing. That is, yes, you'll lose, but that's just temporary. It's only God testing you. As soon as you get your act together, Allah will let you succeed. Okay. So okay. These, are, these are brilliant people. They're hardworking people, and they are tenacious. Look, how long did it take Turkey to become 100%, well, 99.7% uh, Muslim? centuries yeah see as americans we are hindered in our thinking because we want it now we're instant yeah yeah exactly exactly and that's, so we do our planning with a watch and they do theirs with a calendar at a right. generational calendar right islam always has more time islam is never discouraged islam is never defeated and they're quick to turn on a dime let me give you an example of something that i'm the only person who's ever pointed this out to my knowledge you remember 9-11-2001, I presume. Yeah, I remember right when it happened. Me too. I knew exactly when it happened. So, within 72 hours after this event, 
church bell, church phones began to ring, and it was with Muslim Brotherhood contacting and say, "Hi, my name is Abdullah. I'm with such and such, and we would like to come to your church and give a talk on Islam, the peaceful religion." Now. This was a nationwide plan executed across the entire United States and done within three days after 9-11. Richard, we do not have an organization that is even capable of thinking in response in those terms. Right, right, right. That's, that's amazing. I never heard about that. Well, no one else seemed to notice this. Hmm. So that story of the fast response of the Muslim Brotherhood to 9-11 is really impressive, um, not only in the speed of the response and the coordination, but in the brilliance of the response being completely positive and saying, uh, not contentious, like, we didn't do it or something like that. It was saying, uh, Islam, just remember, is a total religion of peace, and uh, if people would like to learn more about it, we'll help you. And that it makes me think like if you can give us more insight into the nature of the muslim brotherhood a lot of people have heard of it in terms of things like and this is a long subject but i'll just mention it when the u.s and its allies destroyed the government and the infrastructure of libya just ruined the country in an illegal attack on it and left the muslim brotherhood in charge intentionally they think, well, the Muslim Brotherhood is this, you know, pretty hardline uh, Orthodox Muslim regime. But I think the, I'm getting the picture from you that the Muslim Brotherhood is a lot more than that, a bigger organization and has more aspects. So maybe you could give us a feeling for what it actually is. Well, first off, it's a, an organization that was created after the fall of the Ottoman Empire. And when Atta, Kamal Ataturk put... Turkey on what was going to be a permanent new connection to the West. That's a whole nother story. Okay. But anyway, so... What, what, what time frame are you talking about in, in terms of years? That was about 1924. Okay. So what happened was is that there were those who looked at Kamal Ataturk as, of course, he was a traitor to Islam, which he was, but he was a powerful man and had charisma, and besides that, the Ottoman Empire was... Uh, decaying and didn't have a lot of its ability to resist any change. But what happened was, instead of trying to overthrow Kamal Ataturk in Turkey, instead the Muslim Brotherhood was founded by um, Ban, I don't know if I can remember their names or not, but anyway, uh, Hassan Bana, I think, was one of them, and Kutub. And basically what they did was they went back to the, uh, <clears throat> the doctrine and just said, look, here's the way the doctrine unfolds. Uh, Kamal Ataturk may be able to thumb his nose at Allah, but we will not do that. And so they put into get put into secret organ first an educational organization, then it became a secret organization with an arm of punishment. And the, this all took place in Egypt. And okay, so, so, uh, so you're not talking about an international organization to begin with, right? Just in, no, just well, you know, it was international in its thought. Well, we need to establish something right here. So far as Islam is concerned, the concept of a nation is a jahiliya concept. That is, it's a concept only of the kafir. Okay. The, okay, you have to remember sense. that the Muslim Brotherhood are utopian idealists, and what they want to do is dissolve all nations mm -hmm. and create one caliphate. Mm -hmm. Okay, okay. So that would, be, that would be a single world government under Allah and Muhammad. Yes, that, that is their big vision. Okay, got it. But they had to start somewhere, so they started in Egypt. And uh, the uh, Has, uh, one of the two, I forget whether it's Kudub or Hassan Bana, 
uh, spent time in prison in Egypt. By the way, the Egyptians are not, and the other national Muslim governments are not hindered by their fear of Islamophobia. They cracked down hard on the Muslim Brotherhood because the Muslim Brotherhood has hurt them. It was the Muslim Brotherhood who was in charge. Do you remember when, um, what was the prime minister of Egypt? did a peace treaty with uh, Begin. I was, I'm sorry to be vague on the names here. No, that's okay. I, I know who you're talking about, but I don't remember the name either. Anyway, he was assassinated after he signed a peace treaty with Israel. Mm-hmm. And uh, this was by the Muslim Brotherhood. So they really cracked down on him. And uh, but when, they, when you say they cracked down on him, you mean the Egyptian government? The Egyptian government. Okay. Now let's move forward to the Egyptian government, what their response was when, I don't know if you remember or not, but... Um, Obama's first foreign speech on foreign policy took place in Cairo, mm-hmm. and he insisted that the Muslim Brotherhood occupy the front row of seats. The Egyptians were upset at this, but after all, Obama was not only president of the United States, but was president of an organization that gives him a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, believe it or not, money influences people. I've heard that, yeah. I'm, I've heard I'm, of it myself. It's possible. Just a possibility. Okay. So anyway, so the Muslim Brotherhood sat on the front row and clapped while the Egyptian government seethed. But now, of okay, course, now the, the seething Egyptian government was still Muslim, though, right? Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay, and the president of the United States was Muslim at that time, also, from what my well, I used to say my three most common questions used to be when Obama was in presidency was, "Aren't I afraid? What's the difference between Sunni and Shia? And is Obama a Muslim?" And I had a standard response: It does not matter whether he's a Muslim or not, but he carries water and chops wood for Muhammad. Okay, okay, all right. So he's being a good Muslim officially or not? Well, he certainly acts in the capacity. Yeah. Okay. So go go ahead with the story. So anyway, I mean, that, so that's, in, in America, the Muslim Brotherhood, I think, is thought probably by Democrats as being some figment of the imagination of the right that we're trying to think that these Muslims would have a secret organization, or even not such a secret organization. I mean, they can operate in plain sight. If they're going to have a meeting, they don't have it in some cabin in the woods. They have it at a big hotel in Chicago. Do they have an official purpose stated? The official purpose is to bring about the Sharia. Worldwide, in other words, single Sharia government. For yes, I mean that's the, look. These people are—they uh, don't flinch. They read the—they read the uh, Quran, the Sirah, the Hadith. They study the Sharia, and they say, "Look, are we are we Muslims or not?" Because Islam is called to rule the universe, not just one right. or two countries. Well, it sounds like you just—you you, know—I asked you for the purpose of the Muslim Brotherhood, but you answered with the purpose of Islam, which are the same thing, right? Exactly. And so, if they're the same thing, what what, what was all the seething about with the Egyptian government? Well, you have to understand, you've got a doctrine here that not everybody wants to obey. Okay. I mean. I mean, take a look at how constrained you are. You're not supposed to listen to music. You're not supposed to go to plays. You're not supposed to have art. I mean, these are, and men and women are supposed to be very controlled as to how they interrelate to each other. Right. Well, these are not the kind of things that most people are like, yeah, put me down for that. Okay, so so the Egyptian government was more in line with, let's keep the official Muslim religion, but not necessarily have to do everything that it requires. Right, that's not not like prohibition was in the United States. There may be the law, but then there was the booze. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Okay, got it. So So the Muslim Brotherhood briefly, but they are an organization which is ingenious. Their ability for planning is unexcelled, and also their will to exist. 
people get tired after a while. But the Muslim Brotherhood does never grow weak, never seems to grow tired. Uh, they stay with the purpose on and on. This is also part of the genius of Islam, that no matter how much they're defeated, they keep coming back. Let's take Spain as a political example. After the Islam invaded the Spanish Peninsula in the year 711, mm-hmm. they uh, fought for another 700 years before they were driven out. Well, now then, I bet you there's a lot of Spaniards who don't even know that there was a Egyptian, I mean, a uh, Muslim government in their country. And that's probably, that may not be true, but I've become pretty amazed at how ignorant people are. But anyway, so now then the Muslims are saying, hey, it is Andalus, which is our word for Spain. We're back and we're going to take it again. So they were thrown out in 1492. That's, say, 1500. Now it's 2100. 600 years later, they're saying, we're back. Okay, and, so, and and all these battles, you know, I've I've had discussions on the phone with representatives of cer- certain Muslim groups trying to understand their points of view, and they many of them justify acts of violence will say by saying, well, this was part of a war, so of course there was violence, but they what they don't seem to want to look at is the reason the war started is because anybody who's not a Muslim needs to be attacked. And that was kind of the basis for all the fighting, right, if I understand it right. It was. Actually, what they're supposed to be done, they're supposed to be offered by voice the opportunity to, uh, the first option is not to fight. The okay. doctor says clearly they're to be offered the chance to submit to Allah. And then if you don't submit, by submission here means become a Muslim. Yeah. If they don't submit, then they can be attacked. This was the reason why when Osama bin Laden produced his BCR tape and called America to Islam, I said, oops, we're going to be attacked. Mm, interesting, I knew, yeah. I knew Muhammad did that. And so, and by, let me mention the similarities of the attack on 9-11 with what the theory of jihad is, or the doctrine of jihad. Okay. First off, it was launched after they were offered a chance to come to Islam. It was a sneak attack, it was in the morning, and it was an attack against an economic center, the World Trade Towers. Mm, mm, okay. <clears throat> Interesting. So if, if, all the Ameri- if, if most of the Americans had converted to Islam, you think the 9-11 attack would not have happened? According to doctrine. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Um, hmm. So, you know, the, the, the theme of this discussion is I'm trying to get a foundation of understanding of the, issue, the major issues so that before we deal with solutions, we can see what it is that needs to be resolved. And I, I think from what you're explaining, if I'm understanding it, the main issue that needs to be resolved is that the enti- Muhammad's entire teaching, which to me is all a religion, even though it obviously is political as well, I mean, it's all a religion because if you do the political part, you go to paradise, so it's hard to separate. But I think the issue is that the religion, which means the will of God, is that you've got to convert everybody else, and they may not want to. (laughs) And they may not want to. Right. So There is that problem. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of, it seems like the core, because if they didn't need to convert everybody else then there's this thing of coexistence which might actually work. 
Well, the problem, well, let's see how Muhammad coexisted. I mean, okay. I always bring it back to the doctrine. Because, now let me, be, let me be very clear. There are many, most Muslims do not follow all the doctrine. But I'm just saying, here's what Muhammad did, and they're supposed to follow it. I don't say that they do. I just say okay. this is what they're supposed well, to do. But we know he was the perfect example, so that's a good place. Exactly. To 91 verses in the Quran say that Muhammad is the perfect example of the perfect human being, or as I love to call him, he was the divine human prototype. And not just, not just for the 600s. But for, yeah, that was the uh, the the year, you know, that he was. All right, no, no, he is the yes. We need to take care of this issue. The doctrine of Islam is permanent, and it's permanent in two ways. The original Quran, which is describes itself as being perfect, complete, universal, and absolute, and eternal. Well, how do you reform that? Yeah, this deals with the Reformation issue because some people say. You know, I've heard Alex Jones, for example, whom I greatly admire, say on, sincerely, you know, other religions were reformed. We, sh we just need to reform Islam. Yeah, but, but people I, never I look at what the word reform means. For Alex Jones, when he uses that word, he uses it in the classical American sense, in which he, what he's saying is, like Christianity had a ref reformation. That's well, what he refers to, yeah, but reform, exactly. means, reform means change. But it also means to go back to the original formula, go back to the roots, go back to the foundation, go back to the original. So the Muslim Brotherhood has already done the Reformation from that definition. Well, let's let's mention some other groups that have reformed. Wahhabism is a Reformation. Okay. Boko Haram is a Reformation. They just, these people describe themselves as reformers. Taliban are reformers. Wow. These are all reformers. Oh. But people look at them and they go, well, but, it made, but they made it worse. But see, this is because you think reforming is going to make it better. So somehow, somewhere we've got a definition of reform that says back to the original, not just a different form. Not a better form or an improved form. I think the key word here is the re, which is to go back. I see, I see, yeah. So in other words, it's just making it more accurate from how it was. Ah, the perfect word. They're making it more accurate. Okay. Okay. A better replication of the product, of the okay. original doctrine. Wow, that's interesting. So it, it's already being made um, more accurate and uh, legitimate and, and perfect and true to the original by all these groups you just mentioned. And by the way, let me say something here. I keep looking for Islamic State to do something that Muhammad didn't do, and there's been a time or two when I thought they were. And as I recall, there was one thing they did when I said, no, that's wrong. But by and large, Islamic State, if you read their literature, and by the way, their literature is exceedingly well done. I can't meet their production standards. If you listen to their literature, their web books and stuff, which, by the way, everybody wants to take their stuff off the web. I say, no, 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 no. Bring it no, up on the web and keep no. it on the web. Yeah, terrible. We need the education. In fact, now since we're talking, and there may be a few other people listening to us at the moment, um, where do they see the actual literature of it, of ISIS? Well, you can see it on the web. Where? Oh, I'd, well, let's see. I have my sources because I get other people who are vaguely connected to law enforcement who create libraries. Okay. So I can access them purpose. Uh, but I mean, you know, is it I stuff don't, you that know, the I don't know. could get? You know, I don't know. I've never thought about it. From what you just said, I think that's pretty important because... Even if they're going to say it's bad, they need to know what it is first. Richard, 
you need to know if you if you're going to improve something, you need to know what you're doing wrong. And if you're going to yeah. learn about something, you need all the you need all the facts, not just the pretty yeah. ideas. These people say, you know, that we shouldn't be terrified to learn about negative things or, or find out whether they're really negative. That's well, that's not an evil thought. Anyway, I am. Let me state my my philosophy. I am a uh, vigorous, full-throated free speecher. Yeah, I don't, I don't believe in hiding facts. I don't believe in uh, now. There, I, there, are, there are times you need secret information, like your passwords and stuff like that. But I'm right. not for ideas being discussed in private and in secret. Right. I mean, no, I don't. If if you wanted to know what was wrong with what the Nazis were trying to do, you should read what Hitler wrote. Precisely, and not what, be afraid to look at it. That's and this is my style. Yeah. So. Yeah, I agree. I hope we can find a, a a public link that does not get anybody in trouble, that is open to anybody to look at, to see what Islamic State actually says. And what thinks. they say is what they say is I've read it in detail. What they say is Quran, Sirah, Hadith, Sharia. I mean, mm-hmm. they are meticulous in their documentation. They did an article, for instance, they said, people are criticizing us because of our sex slaves. These people don't know anything about Islam. And so they went through and they did a whole huge article uh, on sex slavery. And I learned something new because I always read the material. Yeah. And it, it's like graduate student work. And by the way, let me make a mention about Islamic State. People say, well, they're not real Muslims. The caliph, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, holds a Ph.D. in Islamic studies from Al-Azhar University. Now, come on, gang. You're going to tell me you get a Ph.D. in Islamic studies at Al-Azhar University, which is the supreme university in, in, in Islam, and then you're going to turn around and say, well, he doesn't know what he's talking about. <clears throat> I mean, get real, children. Yeah. So anyway, they, they, but anyway, what I learned about Islamic State and sex slaves was they went through not only the doctrine according to the Sunnah of Muhammad, but there's a minor Sunnah, which is the Sunnah of his companions. Because after all, if, if they were taught directly by him, then they know how to act. Sunnah means, means their life, right? Their pattern of their life, their way. Oh, their, okay, okay. So what they mentioned was that out of all of Muhammad's companions, only one of them did not keep sex slaves. Huh. Where did you find that story? I mean, wh- what book did you find that in? It was in, a, it was in an Islamic State uh, magazine on, on the web. Okay, okay. Interesting. Hmm. It, so Islamic State adheres strictly to the doctrine of Islam. Now, most people, I know a man who works in Iraq, who's a former Muslim and he's a Christian now, and he converts Muslims by the simple act of doing this. He said, do you like Islamic State? No. Do you realize that everything they do is what Muhammad did? No. Then he drags out books and starts showing them. Well, they did this, they did this, they did this, and the Muhammad book all because Muhammad did it. Now, mm-hmm. do you want a religious leader who advocates sex slaves? No. So then he converts them to Christianity. Wow, that's amazing. So he's, to convert them to Christianity, he starts with what Muhammad did. My experience with most Muslims is, is not, they don't know all these details. And yet they've been memorizing them since they were, before they could talk almost, right? But, but, but what do they memorize? What they memorize is basically abstract sounds in classical Arabic. We need to make a point here. The, when people say that the Quran is written in Arabic, it's written in classical Arabic, not street Arabic or everyday Arabic or the Arabic of literature. Mm-hmm. 
So the, it's, did you, when you, you, you sound like you're old enough, did you study Shakespeare, uh, Shakespeare and, um, oh, Chaucer? Uh, yeah, I've read some of the Old English, but most of it in regular English. Okay. Well, the Old English is like the classical Arabic. Okay. Yeah, it's hard to understand. That's true. It's hard to understand. But even more than that, you may learn to understand uh, English or classical Arabic, the Chaucerian English, but can you write a paragraph in it? <laughs> right. You have to get into the mindset in order to do that. So anyway, so what people do is they memorize what are basically abstract sounds. It's like if you're a Hindu and you're a student of Hinduism and you learn to chant mantra in uh, Sanskrit. You don't know what the words mean, you just know how to reproduce the sounds. There's an enormous difference between making sounds and understanding concepts. So Perhaps it's like the church only reading the Bible in Latin or something like that. Yes, and the people in the audience don't know Latin and yet they can repeat prayers in Latin. Yeah, yeah, okay, got you, right, right. And that goes right along with Mohammed, you know, is said to have, have required nobody to ask difficult questions like, what does that verse mean, or something like that. Right, and actually, as I recall, it's, the, it's Allah who says, don't ask difficult questions. Allah, sorry, yeah, yeah, Mohammed just let people know that's what he said. Okay, so as far as solving the violence and contention issue, Reformation is probably not a very fruitful way to go, from what you're saying. Well, if Muhammad, if you're going, if you really believe that Muhammad is the perfect Muslim, and you know that he committed 95 acts of jihad in the last nine years of his life, then, and you want to be a good Muslim then if you want to think on that a while, you realize, you know, I ought to be practicing some jihad myself. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. Otherwise, you're not a very good Muslim. Well, I'm just saying these are the rules. Right, yeah, exactly. I'm so not calling is this, is this a way that people get, you know, there's this kind of superficial stuff on, on the mainstream news, which I never believe about anything, but I, th I think they're talking about... Um, American, and this is a, a reason they want to take away the remaining freedoms in America, is they say that people get radicalized. And, you know, in other words, they convert to Islam, like the guy who just did the um, shooting in Las Vegas, they found out that he did convert to Islam. And the thing that would attract most, I think, converts is that um, not to convert to Islam, but, but to join on um, a group like ISIS is that they can prove that they're really accurate, serious Muslims following yes. the scriptures. Yes. And by the way, if you join Islamic State and you go to Syria to fight, they do not hand you a gun. You know what the first thing they hand you? Is a Quran. And I tell you to really understand it at that point? Then they, then they offer you classes in Islam. Wow. Now, this wow. is an important thing that I've told you here. These people are not wackadoo, crazy, just vicious people. Yeah. They're doing what they're supposed to be doing. And so their first training is, is not with a gun, not with a knife, but they train them in the doctrine of Islam and the, what the Sharia means. So they're very devout religious people. You, a good jihadi is religious. He's devout. Yeah. Yeah. Indeed, the Quran says that he is the most devout, and he said they offer the jihadi who dies a reward. And that right. reward is you get to go to heaven directly as soon as you die. You don't suffer the punishment of the grave. Yeah. A vague 
suffering, and yeah. you do not have to go through the ambigu- ambiguity of judgment day. It's like, boom, you go straight right. to paradise. Right, right. It's a lot more efficient. So there's, <laughs> I love there, your use of the word more efficient. There, there's actually a strong incentive for people to join these groups that are involved in jihad. Well, they do, and they also give a meaning saying. and a purpose in life. It, it answers basically all your questions, right? Actually, it answers one hundred percent of your questions. Every question you have, Islam has an answer. This is a powerful tool. That's very appealing because I, I think one of the things that really bothers people most is is trying to figure out what is the purpose and meaning and way to live your life. Well, the, this Islam does a fabulous job of it. And by the way, this is another advantage of Islam over other religions. It's got hard and fast rules. There's Sharia. Any question you have, the Sharia has an answer. So you don't have to think about it. You don't have to right. reason about it. You just have to hear, what did Muhammad do? What does the Hadith say he did? Well, there it is. You do it. So it makes it, life very simple. So it's referring to what's in the three scriptures, the, the Quran, the Sirah, and the Hadith. But is the Sharia itself a separate scripture, or where would you read the, the whole Sharia? Well, let's, let's talk a little bit about what Sharia is. If you want to study what, let's say that you want to, I'm just, this was the first thing came to mind, divorce your wife. Mm-hmm. And you don't want to sit down and read the Sirah, the Quran, and the Hadith about how to divorce your wife. You want to go to a book which has taken all those verses and Hadiths and everything and put them together in one place. Yeah, otherwise it would be a few years before you'd get your divorce, right? You yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and by the way, a, a divorce for a male Muslim is, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you, but you say it in Arabic. Bang, you're divorced. You do have to say it three times, though. You can't be lazy and just say it twice or something. Talik, and I think there was even a fatwa issued in Pakistan that you can do it by instant messaging. Oh, wow. Okay. So there's (laughs) things current with the And who said that Islam couldn't deal with the modern age? Right. That's really interesting. (laughs) Okay. So you're, you're explaining where you find Sharia written down. And usually what, though, most people do not, see, you've used the term written. You, you, you keep displaying yourself to be a Westerner. I know, sorry. I well, trying to get over it. But. Hey, I like being a Westerner myself, because <laughs> it seems to irritate so many people. Don't uh, worry, I feel really guilty about it. So <laughs> okay. Oh, no, where was so, I going with that before I got Well, I, 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 sorry, I, I was oh, saying you said written. written down. No, no, yeah. no, 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 no. Instead of written, what you should do is you should go to your imam and ask him the question, and he will give you the answer. Do you and see do the all, difference? Do here? all the imams have the same answer? Oh, goodness gracious, no. Because and you can be an imam and not be that well trained. So, but one, can you get a second opinion if you don't like what the, one imam tells you? You know, I don't know about that. But I do know there's four or five schools of, of, of uh, Sharia, and they have different attitudes about different things. And if you want to go to a Sharia court, one of the flexibilities built into the system is you get to choose which uh, Sharia court you want to go to. So just like in America, if you can pick judges, well, you can also pick your Sharia school because it's more or less lenient on such an issue that you want. So you want to do some research and see which one thinks what before you decide. But the idea is is you go to a Sharia court or an imam to ask questions. You do not read for yourself. Got it. I'm sorry. Okay. All right. But so, do, 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 we, do you understand the difference here between the two civilizations? 
Well, I see one difficulty because if you wanted to, let's say you wanted to know the whole Sharia so that you obeyed everything. How would you do that if you have to ask every single question to an imam? Uh, well, if you're going to do that, and, and by the way, a good imam, I tell you, don't try to do that. You're trying to make this religion too hard. Just do the simple stuff. Muhammad condemned people who tried to be super Muslims and practice too much. He said, no, 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 no. You're making it way too hard. You, Allah does not want you to burn out, basically, by trying to do too much too soon. Okay. So there's a lot of things built into the Islam which are like very attractive to make it work. You start off with simplicity. You do not tell somebody who's a brand new Muslim about jihad. That's a later doctrine. You want them firm in their practice before you introduce them to the tough stuff. Mm -hmm. This is all very well thought out. This is not some uh, yeah. crazy system. But, but one of the results of that, if I'm understanding what you're saying, is that there are very few Muslims walking around, if that if that if I'm understanding it, that really know the the bulk of what is in Sharia. This is true, but they don't need to. They're to lead a simple Muslim life, okay. praying, keeping the food rules, keeping the feast rules, and doing all those things. In other words, just you just do Islam. You don't want to think about it so much. Okay, so there's really not very many discussions, I would guess, about all these details. There's more the discussion of just, are you going to obey whatever it is or not? Are, are, you, are you praying right? Are you... Yeah. And that kind of thing. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So, so the only ones that... Now, this is not the approach of a, a group like ISIS, because apparently they want you to understand the whole thing. They do want you to understand the whole thing, but they do start out with the simple stuff first. Have to understand. There's some people who show up at the ISIS camps who don't know who are recent converts. Mm -hmm. Recent converts tend to be the best kind. Converts tend to be more enthusiastic about the religion they join than those who were born into it. Okay. Yeah. Well, they have to be enthusiastic to take the trouble to convert, right? Right. So as a result, they follow more of the rules. I knew a friend of mine is a Jew who was complaining about somebody he met who was a recent convert. He says they just wear me out with all that Jew stuff. Leave me alone. <laughs> Right, right. Interesting. But but I get the feeling that the vast majority of people in the Muslim religion were born into it. Yes, by far. Okay. And as a matter of fact, in, uh, in the Arab world, over half of them are illiterate. Right, but even in the West, like in America, this could explain, what you're saying could explain why they don't have more questions about the doctrine because maybe they don't know a lot of it. Well, and they don't, there has been a revolution in, let's talk about what has happened here in knowledge about Islam. Okay. If we go back 20 years ago and we wanted to ask a person on the street, just the average person who stopped and said, do you know what the word jihad means? He would look at you like, huh? Was it a new rap group or something? Yeah, exactly. I didn't know. So now then what has happened is before 9-11, Islam had always been in the hands of Arabist historians uh, professional professionals in universities mm -hmm. and stuff. Okay. What has happened is, now I spent a long time in the university system. I spent nine years as a student and I spent eight years as a professor. The average professor loves knowledge, but he also wants you to think of him as being quite intelligent. I mean, he mm -hmm. has a little ego on the line here. Right. What has happened is, is that these people have always been the scholars and I've read their works. 
and they're usually difficult to read. What has happened is people like myself, Robert Spencer, Andrew Boston, and the list goes on and on, have mm -hmm. written for the consumer. So now then, for instance, I sell a Quran which anyone can pick up and read and understand. That mm -hmm. didn't exist 20 years ago. Yeah. Nor would, an, nor would an Arabist or a specialist in the Quran ever produce such a book, because that's not their intention. They're just in little fine details. When I'm, what I want with my Quran is that you can read it and get all the concepts. Yeah, exactly. Right. So one of the most powerful weapons we have is knowledge. And you would Remember? think that's, the, that's what the knowledge base that, for example, imams would have. Well, they do, but there's a difference. They actually believe, they don't, sh I mean, when I see that, I mean, well, here's a verse from the Quran that just got under my skin. Mm -hmm. It is that the husband is to tell the wife when she's to wean the baby. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I have children, and my, my wife nursed the children. I never even had the concept, Richard, to tell my wife, you know, Joan, I think you've nursed the children long enough. I mean, like, that's her business. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, okay, so so what are you illustrating with that? The fact that, well, what was I illustrating with that, Richard? <laughs> well, you were, you were saying as far as the um, imam's knowledge base versus what these new people were putting out for the average consumer to understand. Oh, I want people to understand that verse because I want them to react to it. But that's not necessarily what someone else who's a scholar. The scholars of Islam usually tended to be deferential to the Islamic doctrine. There are okay. three kinds of people with the study of Islam. There's believers, skeptics, and apologists. Well, I'm of the skeptical sort. I'm not the apologist sort. Before 9-11, the average person who studied Islam was to some degree an apologist for it. Yeah. Well, I, I used to figure that I knew about Islam because the, all of the Muslim people I knew were great. And so it must be really wonderful. Well, see, you, you're how you study what I call Muslimology. I guess so. I mean, I never, at that point, I hadn't read the Quran or anything like that, but I'd talked to Muslims, and, and all the ones that I knew were uh, great people. You know, many of them I read. Well, I had many. Uh, my first reading of the Quran uh, was primarily after having Muslim students, and I found them to be, uh, in many ways, charming, mm -hmm. uh, interesting, uh, quite friendly. Yeah. So, yeah, my, exactly. my, my problem with Islam did not come from Muslims. My problem with Islam came from Allah and Muhammad. Yeah, from what you read. Right. right. Which is, you know, you pointed out that when I was exposing my Western point of view by saying what's written down, originally when Islam started, which is when Muhammad started teaching it, there wasn't anything written down even then for his entire life, right? Exactly. The Quran of Muhammad's day did not exist, except in the minds of men and on leaves and the shoulder bones of animals. Right. But, but the degree of accuracy between what Muhammad actually taught and what's written down is kind of a, an irrelevant point, I guess, because it's universally accepted that the three major scriptures are accurate and come straight from Allah and Muhammad. Yes. Okay, okay. Hmm. Yeah, and, and you mentioned some of the people that are writing about Islam for the average consumer now, and in getting ready for talking about this with you, I, I actually tried to communicate with a number of them. And 
You know, my, and this may be my naive Western point of view coming up again, but I was thinking, well, I, you know, personally, what I would just prefer to have is a lot less people having their heads cut off and everybody kind of getting along better. Uh, <laughs> Which, by the we, way, is a great vision, Richard. I'm, I'm <laughs> behind you here. I like that yeah, idea. It, I'm saying it may be very naive and, and, you know, not realistic, but I thought it would be nice. So, and I couldn't see any reason why it couldn't be because humans I've seen have the capacity to, to kind of be normal and, and human if they want to. But um, belief systems that supersede normal behavior are are an issue because they're so powerful, especially some of the better um, designed ones like you're describing with Islam. So I, I was looking for, all right, what, what can we do to smooth out this little detail of people killing each other? And <laughs> I, I thought I, there were a couple of things I did. One was talking to some of these. I, I did write to Jasper and I wrote to a bunch of other people. And most of the ones who seemed like they were really interested in the subject would not answer me at all. But the ones that um, did were saying that um, there really wasn't anything to do. And, I, and some of the strong groups within the religion told me that I was crazy, it was all a religion of peace, and it was fine. And the people that didn't agree with that might have to be killed, but it was still a religion <laughs> of, of complete peace and harmony. So I, I, I thought, well, maybe individuals could... Um, see that there's some kind of a misunderstanding to think that God wants people to kill each other and hate and stuff. So I wrote. I agree with you. I wrote that document I sent you called the Declaration of Independence, which has since been posted online, MuslimDeclarationOfIndependence.com, and apparently nobody's interested in that. And that was about people saying that we're going to be peaceful anyway and respect and love each other. Apparently, people don't want to do that, so I'm still looking for a good answer. Well, if it'll help you, the answer's been being searched for for a long time. Yeah, I, I don't want to really give up, because a lot of us are still alive, and I kind of like to, you know, keep it more that way. But, I mean... You, the, the real threat of Islam, by the way, has little to do with body count. Yeah, so let's look at the the um, doctrine as opposed to the non-violent jihad that's going on right now that most people don't even know exists. What I object to with Islam is a fusion between the left and Islam, which right now I'm seeing, experiencing primarily in freedom of speech, freedom of ideas, freedom of expression. Yeah, I, I absolutely have been looking into that and see it as a very tight alliance for the moment for not very good agendas. But what is happening is, is that we, there's a new concept now. I've already told you I'm a rabid free speecher. I don't even believe in hate speech laws. See, I told you right. I was radical. I completely agree because whatever you don't agree with becomes hate speech. Exactly. <laughs> but the new rule that the left is trying to put upon us is, is that freedom of speech is hate speech because you will offend someone. Right. Richard, have you ever been offended? Uh, yeah, I guess I have. Did I you mean, survive? I, I don't get I don't get offended much anymore, but I used to because I didn't understand it, and I did survive because I'm still here. Right. That is, there's worse things than being offended. As my point, I'm trying to make is. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't get in a fight because I'm being offended. 
It's being used to cut off all unacceptable speech by the power structure, and it's into the educational system now. I, I was, um, I had an objection. This is just a very short diversion, but in a university course uh, in health sciences, I had an objection to the textbooks that had come into the system. They were all full of racism and all kinds of completely ridiculous, irrelevant stuff to change our view of reality, and I couldn't keep my mouth closed in the end and I said why do you have to bring up about these people's different race and I mentioned a couple of nationalities and the teacher didn't say anything but she turned me in to the administration as a racist What? I was interrogated for a couple of hours to see you know what was my racist intent in questioning this textbook and they finally said well we can't find any details that really show that you're a racist however you offended somebody, so you're guilty. And if you do it again, we'll throw you out of the university. All right, then. <laughs> it was totally fair, though. Totally fair. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they let me talk. Let me let me give you an expression. Let me give you an example of how I'm being treated on freedom of speech. There is an organization called the Southern Poverty Law Center. Have you ever heard of it? I've heard of that one. Yeah. Anyway, they say that I am a racist, hater, bigot, Islamophobe. Right. That's what I would they, expect, actually. Right. That's uh, if that's all they did, I'd be like that'd be like finding your name written on the stall of a trucker's thing, which is for a good time called Bill. You know? Yeah, exactly. Or whatever. Yeah. But what has happened is, is there are now consequences. Uh, Mastercard called me up. They didn't call me. They sent me a letter from a high price firm in New York City uh-huh. that I was to remove the logo of Mastercard from my. Uh, website they did not want to be associated with me wow wow then i then uh, i we started plotting my figures on facebook and and on twitter on tweet mm-hmm. twitter there i said it and we've discovered that uh my somehow or another my communications on facebook have just dis- have dropped by 60 percent in one year's time right 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 and it used to be if you googled a political islam which was a term i coined in after 9-11 I occupied the th- first three screens. Now then, if you mm-hmm. Google my political Islam, uh, two-thirds of those references are gone. Wow. Wow. But Amazing. you may say, well, Bill, you're just paranoid. Google said in a public statement that they would suppress criticism of Islam in their search results, and they would elevate praise of Islam in their search results. And yeah. indeed, that is what has happened. Well, and usually people who know about that say that the prelude to what's going to be happening after that in the U.S., can be seen by looking at Europe right now, where they're arresting people for making statements of that kind. Don't go to Europe. Go to Canada. Well, yeah, yeah, exactly. I have I, I have offered consultation in court trials for for Canada. Mm-hmm. Actually, that's one of the little sidelines I do. Is attorneys get in touch with me and say, "What can we do about this hate speech?" Yes. So I help them with the doctrine and how it can help their cause. But I have spoken with people who spent a year and a half in prison in Canada for holding up a sign at a demonstration. Wow. Wow, that's really interesting. I didn't know I've that. talked with other I did an interview with a person much such as yourself, and the interview wasn't much different than the interview we're having. Uh-huh. And he's now uh, hauled up in front of the courts being threatened with six months in prison for his interviews he did on a news show. Not, and, with, not with you, but by talking about it on a news show? Yes. And I don't know, perhaps my perhaps my interview had part of what they... The point I'm making here is, don't think that freedom of speech is just collapsing in Europe. It is collapsing in uh, 
Canada as well, and there's a, they're trying to get a, there's been through the thing of a motion called 103M103, in mm. which the Canadian government is called upon to quell Islamophobia. Wow, totally incredible. I mean, now Richard, if a, if a, if a government, federal government says that they're going to quell something, my mind yeah. comes to police, confiscations, courts, and prison. Yeah, they do whatever they need to do. They don't have any worries about going too far or anything. The other thing is the, the language and the media that uses it, of course, but language is being used as one of the most powerful weapons because even using the word Islamophobia is like an oxymoron because phobia is supposed to be an irrational fear. Right. Right. So... Uh. Oh, by the way, they're not only to quell Islamophobia, but they're to quell fear. I'm like, this is like a document from 1984. How do you quell fear? Uh, well, one of the ways they have in mind is there's a new vaccine in development that's going to get rid of all stress. And the way that it does it by eating certain parts of your brain. So you'll be fine. Are you serious? I'm absolutely serious. There's about 500 vaccines in development that's one of them, and they plan to make them all mandatory. Well, you know, stress is a funny thing. You need a little of it. You don't want too much of it. Yeah, maybe there will be certain antidote drugs you can take to give you a little bit of stress or something, but, but the main part will be gone if they get there. Well, anyway, if Bill M103 is supposed to, uh, th this is what Canada's sneaking up on, is to okay. the destruction of free speech, imp imposition... And by the way, this is not a bill about religious freedom or religious. Only Islam is called out as to whether that is to be protected. It's not okay, like they say we're going okay, to. Okay. This is not going to be against religious hatred. No, it's not written about that. It's about Islam. So, so do they have to have this M103 because of some counterpart to a Bill of Rights or something in Canada that they want to be superseded? Well, yes, they have a charter of freedoms, I think is what it is, which is not as intense as our Constitution. Mm -hmm. But uh, anyway, the free Canadians are supposed to have free speech at some level, but it's the federal government under Trudeau is viewing that free speech is perhaps not a very desirable thing because people might offend somebody. Right. Well, what if they said something that was wrong? Of course, who determines what is offensive and who determines what is right and what is wrong? Yeah, as soon stepping as you off have... Yeah, at least. I mean, as soon as you have control over the definition of offensive and hate speech, you basically can ban people from saying anything that you don't feel like accepting, which is perfect for a government that wants total control. I remember uh, I had uh, my roommate in college was a Russian major, mm -hmm. and he got to go uh, behind the Iron Curtain to Russia under a, scholar under a scholarship, scholarly exchange kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. And he related to me the incident of where they took two radios with his translator. Yes. Two radios and placed them outside on the edges of the room. And he and this man sat knee to knee in two opposing chairs to lean forward to talk to each other. A radio? Was that a, a, a translating uh, machine or something? No, 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 no. The radios were there because the guy said, look, the KGB has your room wired. Oh, don't even, oh, don't oh. even worry about that. Don't even okay. think about it. It's true. It is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. I mean, they 
There's serious question about whether even face-to-face conversations are not monitored now. But anyway, satellite. so this was this was back under the, during the Cold War, and right. now then with Canada talking, I mean, I see, I can see now Canadians, you know, out in the park or something on a bench, whispering yeah. over it on a park bench so they can talk about Islam. It's really pretty amazing. I mean, let alone reforming people killing each other, reforming how to how to save free speech from extinction is another important question. Richard, if we lose free speech, we've lost it all. I think that's the intent. They're definitely focused on it right now. Because freedom of press means nothing. Freedom of religion means nothing. Freedom right. of ideas means nothing. If you cannot talk about it, I mean... Yeah, if you can only say, like in the Ministry of Truth, right, and you mentioned 1984, <laughs> then um, they'll say, don't worry, you're free to say anything that's true, and we'll let you know what that is. Right. <laughs> Another thing that I did to prepare for our discussion today is I thought, all right, where's a solution, you know, where you can bring Islam into line with the idea of peaceful, mutually um, um respectful coexistence and i thought well let's see what do the sufis do right because some some ah. of, some of those orders are supposedly connected with islam and i i called sufi centers all over the country and got their input which i found pretty interesting but i'd like to know if you have any ideas about sufism and how it fits in i, I started my study of sufism when i was 30 years old which was 46 years ago okay and i went to sufi dances zikrs uh-huh. Hear shakes talk and whatnot. Yeah. But what I discovered was the question you want to ask a Sufi is where do you stand on Sharia? Are you for Sharia or against Sharia? Right. And then you'll discover what his fundamental concepts are. Well, the ones I talked to said we don't have anything to do with politics. Okay. That was at least four major centers around the U.S. Well, I, I cannot. I don't, Sufis, the origin of Sufism comes from the Hindus and Buddhists and Christians who were conquered by Islam and tried to come up with, they tried to improve upon the religion which they were presented a choice of taking. Mm -hmm. And so they came up with, now by the way, Islamic State despises Sufis, just to throw that out. I I can imagine that would be true, yeah, because they're certainly not following the scriptures. And I think there you may have the answer, is that some, and by the way, now let's, let's, do you remember Daniel Pearl? Yes. Do you know who killed him? No. A Sufi. Uh, I thought Sufis were nonviolent. I'm just trying to give you a little data and facts. Yeah, okay. It was a nonviolent killing, I guess. It's a nonviolent killing. They, they cut off his head, his arms, his, his legs. Put him in a box. Okay, so there are apparently different uh, interpretations of Sufism. Sufism is kind of whatever you it's whatever you want it to be. Okay. But many Sufis, their ultimate goal is the Sharia. That's the question I would ask any any Sufi: is where do you stand on the Sharia? Okay. And so, what did you learn in forty some years about that? Well, that was forty six years ago. I describe Sufism as a marble palace with a locked door to the basement. Marble palace with a locked door to the... What, I'm, I'm not sure what that means. Well, there's something in the basement, but they don't want to talk about it. Okay. And what's in the basement is the Sharia. Okay, so 
so they were trying to get away from the strict enforcement of the of their conquerors, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But but that would indica- indicate that they're not really that enthusiastic about Sharia. Exactly, but uh, it is a question to ask because there are many. The what was the man's name that killed Sheikh? Anyway, he was a Pakistani Sufi. Mm-hmm. Okay. And uh, but he believed in the Sharia, and he was a Sufi. So all I'm saying is is that Sufism is a very broad thing. And yeah. You know, and if they don't believe in the Sharia, then I would say that they're not really Muslims. There's just they're just Sufis without Islam. Well, yeah, the ones I talked to, at least half of them were were disconnected from Islam, and had no official position on it. So therefore, could we say they're even Muslim? Well, they didn't think so. The ones I talked to, but then if they but, don't think that, yeah. I mean, this is kind of like uh, you'd know if you are. Yeah, exactly. So, so I was saying, no, they weren't, and they wanted to just, you know, do good things within and, and around themselves, but they had nothing to do with the whole Muslim issue. Well, then, then I think you've solved your problem. They have nothing to do with the Muslim issue, so therefore they couldn't be a solution to Muslim problems. Yeah, I solved the problem in finding out that they are not going to solve the problem. <laughs> exactly. So, I'm still looking. So, what... I, I don't know what the next step is. Uh, I would just, I, I see clearly the direction that, that things are going at the hands of an amazing coordination between almost all the Western governments that are pushing the same thing. And I see the same coordination between all the big um, corporations on a global scale, like the one that told you to take the MasterCard logo down. Those are not independent anymore. They're I've had friends that have been maybe not as much on the list of horrible people as you are, but pretty close. Actually, some of them probably equal. And they were attacked by PayPal, Chase Bank, um, yeah. MasterCard, Air France, World Health Organization. All these people work together in perfect unison to shut down all their activities. And I think that's interesting. Welcome to my world. Yeah, exactly. So what happens to you now when you go and give uh, talks? Are you still talking at universities? Oh, I've only been talked by a couple of universities, and they were sort of a happy accident. And they weren't, it wasn't the university officially invited me. It was an organization within the university. Yeah. So, student organization. So what you're able to do with your... And by the way, I, I really want to plug your books because I thought they were fantastic, and I read most of them. So maybe you can tell people about your site and why, you know, what the function of all these books are. They're not disconnected. They're, they make kind of a course. Actually, um, they are a course. Okay, so the, maybe you can explain that. Well, I have a website called politicalislam.com, and it is devoted to education. And to do that, I've t- and what, what I educate people about are not Muslims, but Islam. And so yeah. I have books which let you understand the Quran. But I only have books, I also have entire training courses. I have a method of teaching, which is in, instead of introducing you to just the Quran, I introduce you to all of Islam. And, and, one, and once you understand Islam at, at a superficial level, then I build on that so you, you learn in layers. But these, okay. are, these are courses designed for easy education. I'm a former professor who always... The be- being a professor is really wonderful. You, you, occasionally you're talking to students and you can see the light turn on their eyes. 
mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which is that's that's a hit. Yeah, I I agree. That's great. So anyway, so I um, my books are easy to read. I've also got big ones and little ones. I've discovered that my big books sell at about five percent of the rate of the little books. People, hmm. if you hand them a big book, they're like, "Oh, I can't do this." So a lot of my books are my smallest book is one eighth of an inch thick. Sharia law for non Muslims. Mm-hmm. But these books are written in simple language. I tried to write them so that a failing student in high school could read them. Okay. So if somebody read the Sharia law, law for non-Muslims, from what you were explaining before, it sounds like that might give you more of a complete understanding of Sharia than a lot of people within the religion actually have. Actually, this is quite true. Very true. Now, by the way, I explain Islam from the viewpoint of how it affects me. I do not discuss the religion of Islam, how to pray, how mm-hmm. to do wuzu, which is the bathing rituals. I don't describe any of the thing that has to do with religion. I only discuss how it impacts me, the non-believer, the kafir. Okay. So, so you're, you're getting into that because, you know, similar to what made me want to solve a few things is that there's some big issues with the intent being you know, uh, contrary to to freedoms in a lot of different areas, not just freedom of speech, but freedom of belief and everything else is directly targeted for attack by the scriptures of Islam. So you're you're making those scriptures understandable, which I totally found to be true. And I would recommend it to everybody. Just I, I think everybody might as well understand every religion, but especially religions that have, as you said, become uh, partners of a big part of the current power structure. So it, it's good to know, you know, have more understanding of what's going on. You're not really suggesting a solution as far as I know, right? You're just clarifying the problems. I say before you have a solution, you need to know what the problem is. Right. Uh, right. You can tell uh, people immediately, what am I going to do? Well, the first thing you need to do is get your facts straight. Yeah. And so I, I try to teach people to listen to the speech of Muhammad and the speech of Allah. Mm-hmm. Then okay. make up your own. Then make up your own mind. Right. Right. Yeah. Without that education, you just have people arguing over beliefs that may not be founded in anything that they read on the web or got off of the evening news. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And there's nothing in there against the Muslim people. I can say that. Absolutely nothing. Having read it. Yeah. I never condemn anybody. I, I never, I mean, if you listen to the interview we've just done, have I ever condemned anyone? What do I say about the Muslim Brotherhood? I say they're a brilliant organization, well-planned, and extremely right. good at what they do. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I completely agree. So, um, hopefully, you know, the, the nec- what, what's happening from your work, I think, is you're giving the foundation where people can even think about how to respond to all this. I also teach them the right language, Richard. People forget that in the scientific effort, part of the method of the scientific method is precise terminology. Right. So instance, we used, used the term radical earlier. I never use the term radical. You know why? Muhammad never used the term radical, nor did the Quran ever use the word radical, so therefore I don't use it. Right, right. No, I, I know in, in uh, and, and using it changes the whole understanding of everything. Uh, it takes it away from following Muhammad and the scriptures to just becoming crazy. And what what the news, for example, is reporting on this incident that happened in Las Vegas is that, well, maybe the guy became radicalized, but what they're what they really are talking about is that they now have, you know, complete 
information that he is a convert to Islam. But, but the way they say it is he's just a crazy radical. He's not crazy and he's not a radical. Right. Now, maybe he right. is crazy. I don't know, but he's not a radical. Yeah. If you do, Richard, if you're doing 70 miles an hour down the interstate in Tennessee, you're not, you're not radically driving. Now, if you do 70 miles an hour in a school zone, that's radical. Yeah. Yeah. So if you're obeying the rules, how are you being radical? Right. Language is so powerful and, and it's being lost. That's the reason, they, that's the reason they want to control language. Well, and also remove it. I think remove it. Dr. Warner, because in, in schools, whether it's with Common Core or other things, the standards uh, of language uh, competence are going down very steadily, not unavoidably, but as part of the same program. By the way, I founded a yard sale years ago, a bunch of Time magazines that were from the Second World War. Mm, there were okay. Eisenhower on the front, General Patton, yeah. and everything. Wow, and so nice. I read the magazines. Do you know the main thing I came away with? They Almost could actually right. speak, I suspect. Yes. Long, detailed articles. Not a yeah. lot of pictures and almost no advertisements. Yeah. These were thoughtful, long. These were articles. It's so unlike what we have today. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. And it, it's getting more into single-syllable communication. <laughs> oh, oh. Yeah. You good, you bad. Or it takes, it takes too long to say, okay, so you just say, K. <laughs> I think Actually, that's I've seen that in, in instant messaging. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, I want, you know, I'm hoping that everybody will want to read your books and will make time even to do it gradually. And I think you have other kinds of courses on your website besides the books, right? Or that maybe use the books, but they guide you through them. They guide you through them. I also have audio books. I have okay. an electronic Great. format. Those are useful if you have to drive somewhere, things like that. So... All right. Well, this is great. I hope you, even though I don't know what the next step will be, I hope you'll come back pretty soon and um, keep the interest going in this really important subject. Well, Richard, I told you when we started, I think you're my favorite interviewer. I've had a lot of interviewers in my time, let me assure you. I'm bad. And, uh, yeah. uh, I enjoy your way of method of interviewing better than anybody's. Well, so let's I, do it again sometime after I, we get... I, I want to. I think it'll be great. So hold on here and we'll say goodbye in the break in a minute. Okay, so that was uh, Dr. Bill Warner that uh, has given us a lot of really interesting insights. I, again, remind you to take a look at his site when you get a chance. It's called www.politicalislam.com, and I really do recommend his books. I'm not getting paid to say that at all. It's okay if I am, but but I'm not getting any money for that. I'm I'm just telling you... um, I read them, and they're really helpful. Um, They give direct access to um, the original verses in the scriptures, not just the Quran, but the Sirah and the Hadith, and you need all three and how they fit together, and you need them in correct chronological order correlated to the events in Muhammad's life to really understand what they're talking about. And I found them immensely helpful. You don't need... Uh, years to read them. They're they're condensed down and totally accurate, not based on some scholar or imam's opinion. They're they're based on Muhammad's opinion, which is, I think, the one that matters in Islam. So anyway, as I told you, the reason I invited Dr. Warner tonight is for because I'm looking for solutions, and um, I don't have any obvious ones yet, and I don't think he does either. He agrees that we need to find some. Uh, 
and my talks with the Sufis and with the famous speakers on Islam during the week getting ready for this show also failed to gain solutions. So most of the people speaking on this topic, you know, at least if they're being honest, they're, they're speaking on, on what the problems are, but they don't have answers really. So if, I did mention the Declaration of Independence for Muslims and their friends that I wrote, and I was the first signer, you know, because I think it seems like a good thing to me if we could declare all of us that we are rising above this idea that God hates people as, you know, anybody that's not in our chosen group and that we have to kill all the other people and or enslave them or whatever, that there's something wrong with that picture that they're the people that are the greatest spiritual teachers recognize that God is not about killing the people that are bad. He's about not only he. I, I don't mean to put it in gender specific or uh, anthropomorphic terms at all. There, there's a a level of God or spirit that's way above that, where you don't have that kind of hatred being generated. So my hope in writing the Declaration was that. Um, maybe we could be at the point, at least some of us, to acknowledge that and say, no, we're not going to uh, kill people in the name of God and love and truth anymore. We're going to do something a little bit more intelligent. But I don't know. You can see if it looks like something worth spreading. It's at muslimdeclarationofindependence.com. And let me know what you think about it. So I'm interested in your suggested solutions um, not just about Islam, but if any belief system, whether it's Antifa or some other religion or a, a political ideology says you have to kill all the people except the ones in our group or that everybody else except us is evil, um, what's the answer to that? How do you get humans to remember that that's very low consciousness and it's below our potential? We could have something much nicer on this planet if we can wake up a little bit more. And right now, it's kind of urgent with Islam because the global rulers are using Islam and the people that will kill for it uh, to destabilize societies so that people will beg for tyranny to restore order. It's kind of their typical uh, strategy that they've been using for a very long time. So, th again, it just brings the question back, are people capable of rising above belief, at least some of us, let us know what you think. There, there's a forum uh, to discuss these kind of things and anything else you want to talk about during the week, between shows, during shows, whatever. It's on the site, lostartsradio.com, www.lostartsradio.com. All the archives of every show we've done for, since the beginning are also accessible there for free, no money required. Also, one of our listeners uh, yeah, has set up a Facebook group for Lost Arts Radio, and we'd appreciate letting people know about that and maybe participating in it if you have time. And then if you have specific suggestions that you want to email me for uh, shows, like on Saturday we have our discussion show, we talk about any of these things there. Um, feedback, suggestions, questions, no expectation for you to agree with me at all. It's just discussion. Um, you can reach me at lost, Richard at LostArtsRadio.com, and I read every one of those. And then if you have money and you want to support us because that's how this work keeps going, then there's donate buttons on LostArtsRadio.com and also LostArtsResearchInstitute.org. 
and mailing addresses for donations if you don't want to give part to PayPal. And I would like PayPal to become nice, but they've been part of the global uh, collusion between global corporations to shut down anybody telling the truth about forbidden information. So if you want to make a donation and mail it so that they don't get funded too, that's fine. Either way, actually, is fine. We need the money to keep going, so that would be nice. And check out our Saturday night show, as I mentioned. That's uh, at this same location, blogtalkradio.com slash lostartsradio, and you can come and listen to it at Saturday at uh, 6 o'clock Pacific, 9 o'clock Eastern U.S. time. You know, you know, hear it by archive if you're in the part of the world where it's 3 in the morning or something, that's fine. But if you get a chance to call in live on Saturdays, we have the feature that after I talk for a while about things I want to go over, we take some calls, and you might like to be part of that. And we'll talk about individual layers, levels of solutions that work, starting with uh, taking care of yourself, upgrading your own physical, mental, emotional, spiritual health, um, because the degree to which you're willing to do that I'm not talking about religious anything here. It's something else. Uh, the degree to which you're willing and brave enough to do that will determine the impact you can have on other people even if you don't say anything. I know it sounds counterintuitive or strange or imaginary, and it's not. And what we're offering there is some very ancient and timeless insight into how you can actually do that and come to have a tremendous impact on the outside world at the same time as helping yourself so there's no dif no difference between being selfish and selfless if you really understand what those things mean. So we're inviting you to uh, listen to some really outside-the-box practical ideas that you can start using as soon as you're ready to uh, explore. Regain your own... Uh, power to heal yourself and heal everybody else around you at the same time. So if that interests you, if you're in a difficult position with any kind of health situation or um, life situation or things that are affected by consciousness, which is virtually everything, then why don't you meet me on Saturday and we can talk about very, uh, very interesting levels of those things, what's really at, at the foundation of health and disease and harmony and uh, disharmony between people, within people, and in the world in general, because they're all very much tied together, and it'd be fun to share it with you. That's Saturday night, 6 o'clock Pacific, 9 o'clock Eastern U.S. time. And in the meantime, check out the site, lostartsradio.com, lostartsresearchinstitute.org. Uh, give me your feedback. Go to the Facebook group if you have time, and um, participate there, because it's a new group. It's looking for more uh, people to participate. And thanks for being with us on the show. I really appreciate it. Uh, thank you to Dr. Bill Warner for coming by again. It was great. And I hope you have a great week, and I'll meet you here next Saturday. Thanks. Listen to our new